Thank you, Abby, for that lovely introduction. Um, it's been a while since the last time that I came to preach here, uh, but as Abby mentioned, I, I go to Bellingham Covenant, but occasionally I do uh, walk over here and attend worship. I live uh, less than a mile uh, that way, I think, that, that way. Um, so, very close to Columbia Elementary School is where I live, so very close. Um, <clears throat> all right, uh, Chris let me choose to preach on whatever I wanted to preach on, so uh, I chose to preach on 1 Kings 2, which uh, I'm going to read it in a little bit, and you may wonder why anyone would have chosen such a passage, but here's the thing. Uh, I preached it earlier this summer at a friend's church, and uh, he, was, uh, he had a, a series going through 1 Kings, so that's why I chose it. Um, but I think it is also a good standalone sermon, and uh, you can decide when I'm done if you also think it is a good standalone sermon. So, earlier this summer, I was in London. I went to the UK for the first time uh, ever, and I uh, was seeing the sights, and a friend of mine uh, recommended that I go to see the Churchill War Rooms, which, uh, if you don't know what those are, and I did not until I went to them, uh, or had them recommended, rec recommended to me, uh, they are uh, a series of rooms that are underground, uh, kind of an underground bunker that is in central London, just north of the Houses of Parliament, um, where uh, Winston Churchill and his war cabinet uh, during the Second World War would uh, meet and uh, eat and sleep, uh, and that is where they conducted uh, the war from those rooms underground. And uh, when the war was over, in 1945, uh, the rooms were all uh, sealed up and, and nobody went into them for uh, many, many years. Uh, and then eventually they were reopened and turned into a museum that you can uh, go underground and walk through. And they are uh, preserved essentially the way that they were left uh, in 1945 with maps on the walls and tables set up and, and things like that. So it's a very, very... A uh, cool, very interesting museum, and, and part of the museum is uh, uh, a, a, a section devoted to just the life of Winston Churchill, who le led a very eventful life. Uh, he had taken over, I was reminded of this as I was going through this museum, uh, he had taken over uh, as Prime Minister in May of 1940 uh, after the resignation of Neville Chamberlain, who is now uh, infamous for his policy of appeasement uh, toward Hitler in the days leading up to the war. Uh, after signing uh, something called the Munich Agreement, which gave a region of Czechoslovakia to Germany, Chamberlain returned to England with a paper signed by himself and Hitler, uh, and there's a, a famous, uh, famous footage of him kind of waving this piece of paper in the wind and announcing that it signaled, uh, this agreement signaled peace for our time. But um, a month or two later, uh, Churchill said in Parliament 
that it was a total and unmitigated defeat, and the Second World War uh, began less than a year later. Chamberlain was out, and Churchill was in as prime minister. So, in hindsight, uh, Chamberlain's policy of appeasement was the wrong one, and it would have been right to oppose uh, Hitler's territorial claims, but at the time, with war not yet begun, and with many people not wanting to go to war again just 20 years after the end of another huge war, um, it was unclear how peace could be maintained. So today, I want to ask the question, how do we pursue peace on a much smaller scale than um, international politics? In, In our own lives, we often face this dilemma in difficult relationships, Uh, with family members or coworkers, we want to pursue peace, but it's hard to know how to do that. Do we uh, confront someone else, or do we hold back uh, and pursue a more conciliatory route? And how do we know when is the right time? So I want to uh, explore this this question of how do we pursue peace uh, by looking together with you at 1 Kings chapter 2, which records the transition of power between King David and his son Solomon. And we're going to look at how uh, David and Solomon sought peace, uh, whether they were right to pursue peace in the way that they did, and uh, what we can learn about how to pursue peace in our own lives and relationships. So I'm going to read uh, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 11. And do you guys stand again? Yes, please stand. (laughs) for the reading of scripture. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the time drew near for David to die, he gave a charge to Solomon his son. I'm about to go the way of all the earth, he said, so be strong, act like a man, and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him, and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations, as written in the law of Moses, Do this so that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you go, and that the Lord may keep his promise to me. If your descendants watch how they live, and if they walk faithfully before me with all their heart and soul, you will never fail to have a successor on the throne of Israel. Now you yourself know what Joab son of Zeruiah did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's armies, Abner son of Ner and Amasa son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle, and with that blood he stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. Deal with him according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to the grave in peace. But show kindness to the sons of Barzillai of Gilead, and let them be among those who eat at your table. They stood by me when I fled from your brother Absalom. And remember, you have with you Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, who called down bitter curses on me the day I went to Mahanaim. When he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death by the sword. But now, do not consider him innocent. You are a man of wisdom. You will know what to do to him. Bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. Then David rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. He had reigned 40 years over Israel, seven years in Hebron, and 33 in Jerusalem, So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his rule was firmly established. Let's pray. 
All right, thank you for your word uh, to us. Um, Lord, I pray that you will um, be with me as I, um, as I preach it, uh, that you will show us uh, where you are in this word uh, and what it can say to us about how to follow you. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so this is a very interesting passage, as I'm sure you could tell. Um, and I'm going to take a look at it under three broad headings. One is, uh, the first one will be uh, looking at how David and Solomon sought peace, and there's a slide to that effect uh, to remind you of where we are. Then uh, second, uh, I will look at whether David and Solomon were right to seek peace in the way that they did, and then uh, how do we pursue peace, uh, what we can learn uh, from them about how to pursue peace in our own lives. So, to begin with, how did David and Solomon seek peace? Uh, in this passage, we see David recommending, and uh, then later in, in the rest of the chapter, Solomon enacts a policy that they think will make for peace in the kingdom of Israel. Solomon, whose name, Shalomon in Hebrew, uh, echoes the, the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, uh, is seeking to establish peace in his kingdom. And the passage begins with David telling Solomon to be strong. And the form that that strength takes is uh, not asserting his own will, but obeying the will of the Lord as written in the law of Moses. And David believes that the continuation of his dynasty uh, depends on his descendants maintaining this obedience. And this sets up a tension at the very beginning of the books of Kings. Uh, it leaves a, a question in the, in the reader's mind, will David's descendants be able to follow God in the way that they rule? Or more accurately, since the uh, original audience of Kings would have uh, known how this story ended, they would have experienced the end of the kingdom uh, and being conquered and going into exile, where did they go wrong? Uh, what happened to the descendants of David um, that led us so far off track as a nation. So that's how David begins his advice to his son Solomon. Follow the law, be strong, uh, obey the Lord. But then you can almost hear the theme music from the Godfather playing in the background. As uh, beginning in verse five, David recommends that Solomon use his wisdom a very important word in the life of Solomon, uh, use his wisdom to eliminate Joab, uh, David's former army commander, and Shimei, a relative of the previous king, Saul, uh, who had opposed David earlier in his reign. David's stated rationale is that Joab had incurred blood guilt by uh, killing two other army commanders, Abner and Amasa, in peacetime. Fair enough, Joab dil, did kill those two guys, um, although it's a little bit mysterious why it is that David sees a need for him to be eliminated right now. Previously, when David had first heard about Joab's uh, killing of Abner, for example, uh, he was content to curse Joab, but leave the working out of justice to God. He said in 2 uh, Samuel chapter 3, verse 28, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner, 
May his blood fall on the head of Joab and on his whole family. Then David hung back and trusted God to bring justice. So, why this change of heart? It could be that David changed his mind about the wisdom of doing nothing earlier um, or taking no action earlier. Uh, Or it could be that he sees Joab as more of a security threat than he was before. But either way, it seems like there is a reluctance now to uh, just let, uh, or to entrust God with the bringing of justice in the matter of Joab. And then David also recommends that Solomon use his wisdom, he uses the, the same word again, to eliminate Shimei. Now, Shimei was part of the family of Saul, David's predecessor as king. And when David was fleeing Jerusalem on account of the revolt led by his son Absalom, Shimei had cursed David and his men and had called him a murderer. And when one of David's men, Abishai, who incidentally was the brother of Joab, uh, when Abishai asked, if, asked David if he could go over and kill uh, Shimei, David said, leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Again, he decided to leave justice in God's hands. And then, later, after Absalom's revolt was put down, Shimei uh, came to meet David on his way back into Jerusalem, uh, and he repents. He says that he was wrong. Uh, He says, I, your servant, know that I have sinned, but today I have come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph to come and meet my lord the king. Uh, Abishai, Uh, has a bit of a one-track mind. Uh, He again asks, shouldn't Shimei die? Uh, But David says no again, and he promises that he will not kill Shimei. Then fast forward to 1 Kings chapter 1, the chapter just before the the, the one that we read, where David's son Adonijah sets himself up as king. In 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 8, Shimei is specifically called out as not joining with Adonijah. He remained faithful to David all these years later. And yet, the last recorded words of, the, of David in the Bible are, you are a man of wisdom, you will know what to do to him, bring his gray head down to the grave in blood. So again, as with Joab, we are left as readers wondering what happened to change David's mind. The narrator doesn't say, And we're left to guess, but it's clear that something has changed in the way that uh, David is approaching things. In between uh, David's recommendations to kill Joab and Shimei, he says to show kindness to the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite. And it's maybe significant, though, that uh, these sons of Barzillai never appear again in the books of Kings. They are completely gone from the narrative. Uh, Instead, the focus turns to Solomon and his elimination of his enemies. So, starting in verse 13 of chapter 2, Solomon gets to work establishing his throne. I won't read the rest of the chapter in its entirety, but here's a summary. First, he eliminates his brother Adonijah, whom David had not mentioned, uh, David has a bit of a soft spot for his sons, so it's kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's understandable that uh, it fits with his character that he would not have 
uh, commanded uh, Adonijah to be gotten rid of. But uh, Adonijah uh, foolishly asked Solomon uh, for his father David's concubine as a wife, so Solomon gets rid of him. Then Solomon sends the priest Abiathar into exile uh, in spite of his faithfulness to David over many years, Solomon regards him as a liability on account of his support of Adonijah. So he removes him from the priesthood and sends him away out of Jerusalem, away from uh, where the temple would be, where Solomon would build the temple, to his hometown of Anathoth, which uh, that is not the last time that the uh, name of that town appears in scripture, and I'll mention uh, where it does a little bit later. And then, as David had recommended, Solomon eliminates Joab and Shimei. On giving the command to kill Joab, uh, Solomon says that peace is what he is after. Uh, He says in verse 33, On David and his descendants, his house and his throne, may there be the Lord's peace forever. And the death of of Shimei comes three years later. Solomon uh, initially just puts, puts him under house arrest, Uh, tells him to stay in Jerusalem and not to cross the Kidron Valley. Um, And that is uh, an interesting kind of tidbit because uh, Shimei was from the tribe of Benjamin, um, which is uh, east of uh, Jerusalem, where their territory is. uh, And he would have gone east from from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to get home uh, and maybe gather support from, uh, from his tribe. Shimei agrees to this uh, arrangement. It's not like he had much of a choice. But after three years, two of his slaves run away to Gath in Philistine country. They took shelter with Achish, the same Philistine leader that David and his men had sheltered with when he had been running from Saul uh, many years earlier. Uh, Shimei goes to retrieve them, uh, possibly thinking that he's not breaking his house arrest since he's heading west and not east across the Kidron Valley, but Solomon doesn't interpret it that way, and he gives the order to have Shimei killed, commenting uh, in the end that David's throne will remain secure before the Lord forever. So, peace and security are are what uh, David and Solomon are after in this chapter. Peace and security are both good things, but how we pursue them matters. So now uh, we're going to look at whether David and Solomon were right to do what they did. And this is a a little bit of a case study on how to interpret Old Testament narrative uh, because there are a lot of narratives in the Old Testament where the narrator uh, just tells you what happened. And uh, sometimes the narrator will give an explicit indication of whether something is right or whether it's wrong. Uh, whether somebody is, is uh, doing the right thing uh, or not. Um, but there are other passages like this one where they just lay out the facts and you're, uh, you're meant to uh, infer um, what's really going on kind of based on your, your knowledge of the entire story and of the entire Bible. So, um, but it's not clear uh, what exactly is going on or how, how we're supposed to evaluate Uh, what David and Solomon are doing here. Uh, Biblical scholars are divided on how to evaluate what David and Solomon are doing. Uh, If you read commentaries on this passage, uh, some will say 
this is what you have to do to establish justice. Uh, you can't be squeamish about confronting enemies. Uh, the wisdom that David talks about, um, that uh, he mentions twice, uh, that Solomon act out of your wisdom, uh, that's real wisdom. Uh, he's giving good advice. But other commentators will say, uh, no, it's more complicated. In spite of David's rhetoric about following the law and clearing himself of guilt at the beginning of the chapter, this is just an example of power politics. This is uh, the wisdom of the world. This is realpolitik. This is the way uh, you know, the nations of the world act. Uh, it's not godly wisdom. So there's a, even a divide uh, among different biblical scholars on how we should uh, interpret this passage and, and what David and Solomon do. And uh, now it's true that justice does sometimes involve doing difficult things. Um, one of the main roles of government is to uh, preserve and enact justice. Uh, and Paul does say, uh, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 13 that rulers don't bear the sword in vain uh, or for no reason. But on the other hand, uh, you do sometimes hear naked self-interest dressed up in high-minded language. Um, you see it in politics all the time with people in one party accusing people in another party of behaving badly or acting in self-interest. Uh, all the while, they kind of turn up a blind eye to the things that, they're go that are going on in their own party, uh, even though um, they are certainly without, uh, not without fault uh, on their side of, of the aisle. Um, it's, it's very common to, to frame themselves as, as ac uh, acting in the interest of the people uh, and their opponents as, uh, as not. And you also, sadly, uh, see it in, uh, in churches. Uh, sometimes when you hear talk about uh, faithful, faithfulness to the Bible and to the mission of the church, uh, it is sincere, uh, but sometimes it can, uh, in some churches, mask ulterior motives. Um, and it, take, it can sometimes take work and discernment uh, to figure out what is real and, and what is hypocrisy. Uh, and if uh, we're not uh, willing or able to do the work of discerning between the two, it uh, can be very easy to become disillusioned and cynical and to conclude that everyone uh, is just out for themselves, always acting uh, out of self-interest, even if they uh, say the right words. Um, but I don't want you to become disillusioned and cynical. Um, it, is, it is easy to do that, uh, to drift toward cynicism. When you read uh, something like the Books of Kings, which is very honest about the, the flaws of everyone involved, uh, including people who are often regarded as heroes, like David and Solomon. Uh, but I think uh, still, in spite of the, the messiness, it is possible to discern right from wrong and good from bad, uh, even in the, the messiness of life. Um, and it's possible to pursue peace and goodness uh, within the messiness of life. Because even though the human actions and motivations uh, can sometimes be messy, uh, in the books of Kings, uh, they tell a story of God's faithfulness in the midst of human brokenness and frailty. The books of Kings are looking for a righteous king to appear, uh, one who follows the whole law, as David mentions at the beginning of chapter 2, and governs justly and wisely and establishes 
perfect peace. Uh, I personally, I will lay my cards on the table, I think that David and Solomon failed here uh, to, to rule justly, uh, but they can still teach us about how to pursue peace and security in a healthy way. So that is uh, whether David and Solomon were right, and now um, the, the third main point, how do we pursue peace? What can we learn uh, from this text? about how to pursue peace in our own circumstances. Uh, just a couple, a couple of, of points on how to pursue peace. Uh, f- the first one is that the past has to be resolved in one way or another. Uh, the novelist William Faulkner uh, has a very famous saying, uh, the past isn't over, it isn't even past. Um, it's it's common for us to, you know, want to just move on from, from difficult situ- situations. Um, you know, if, if someone has, has hurt us, to, you know, cut them out of our lives. Um, but it's, it's uh, usually more complicated than that. Uh, we can't just move on. Uh, the past has to be resolved, uh, or we will often end up making the same mistakes uh, or relieve, reliving the same traumas uh, that we have faced and how we resolve our past matters. David and Solomon, in this passage, decide to resolve the past in one way by using their power to eliminate threats. But establishing peace in this way led to unintended consequences. For example, uh, and I mentioned earlier that I would would bring this up again, so the, the priest Abiathar was sent into exile in Anathoth, But that is not the end of the story. Over 300 years later, it is mentioned at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah that the prophet Jeremiah comes from the priests at Anathoth, which indicates that there was some kind of a priestly community there, away from the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, And I would say that it, it's, uh, it's significant that, Anathoth, uh, that Abiathar was sent to, to Anathoth uh, into exile, away from uh, his priestly duties, but then 300 years later, uh, Jeremiah the prophet emerges from a priestly community there uh, and uh, to provide a prophetic critique of Solomon's descendants, the kings of Judah. So, It's important to ask then uh, ourselves, what parts of my past need resolution? Um, It's something that that I considered when uh, when I was uh, writing this sermon, and I I invite you to now uh, consider what parts of your past may may need resolution. Uh, And I invite you to to ask God to, to show you how uh, these things in your past might be resolved because God loves to bring peace even to seemingly um, insurmountable, uh, difficult situations um, because uh, our past has to be resolved in one way or another. And then uh, second, how and when we pursue peace makes all the difference. As I mentioned earlier, David waited for God to act at earlier points in his life, 
and he counsels action here at the end of his life. When pursuing peace, uh, I think it would be wrong to wait when action is required, uh, and it would be wrong to act when waiting is required. So how do we tell the difference? Uh, When to act uh, and when to wait? Uh, I think one rule of thumb um, to, uh, to suggest is to look at the options before us and how much they cost us. Because there is always a temptation, and I know uh, I have seen this in my, my own life, in my own circumstances, um, I'm always tempted to secure peace at no cost to myself. It's much easier for me to point at someone else and ask them to do the work of pursuing peace uh, and, and reconciliation uh, if it's a broken relationship. Um, there's a book that I read a number of years ago that I think shed some light on this. It's uh, by uh, a guy named Andy Crouch, an author named Andy Crouch, uh, and the book is called Strong and Weak. And in it, uh, he presents a two-by-two chart that I think gets at this temptation to pursue peace in a way that doesn't cost us. Uh, And it's up here on the screen. So as you can see, the vertical line is labeled authority, or if you can't, I will tell you (laughs) it's labeled authority. And the horizontal line is labeled vulnerability. Uh, When, uh, and what Crouch says in this book is that when authority is low, and vulnerability is high, in the bottom right of the chart, uh, there is suffering. When authority and vulnerability are both low, there is, he calls that withdrawing in the lower left part of the chart. And when authority is high, but vulnerability is low, he calls that exploiting in the upper left. And acting to pursue peace at no cost to ourselves is where, I would say, exploiting happens. And Crouch puts flourishing in the upper right-hand corner of the chart with high authority combined with high vulnerability. And that's where I would say we want to be uh, when we are pursuing peace, where we use the authority that that we have and combine it with vulnerability. I would argue that this is where David was Uh, in that upper right quadrant early in his career when he had the authority to order Shimei's death, but he didn't. Instead, he used his authority as king to restrain one of his officers from killing Shimei. And that left him vulnerable. There was a cost to him, but that also left the door open for Shimei to later come and repent of his earlier uh, cursing of David. So this place of uh, pursuing peace at a cost is uh, where Jesus was in the scripture reading uh, before the sermon from John chapter 14. Jesus was speaking to his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, the night of his betrayal, the night before his crucifixion. Um, And uh, I'll put up uh, just a couple of verses from the the passage there, because I want to point out some, some echoes here in, um, uh, in, the, in uh, John 14 to the, the 2 Kings 2 passage. Like David, 
Jesus is giving his farewell speech uh, before he departs. And like David, he emphasizes obedience. He talks about um, obeying his, his, his word and his commands. But unlike David, uh, I would say that Jesus was willing to pursue peace at great cost to himself. He was preparing uh, in this moment to lay down his life, although he could have uh, he could have escaped, he could have withdrawn, or he could have uh, conquered his, his enemies uh, at no cost to himself. He showed maximum authority and maximum vulnerability. He used his authority to lay his life down so that he could pick it up again. So when we pursue peace, either by not acting when we have authority or protecting ourselves uh, from showing any vulnerability, the peace we get doesn't last. Um, it didn't last in the, the situation of Solomon, as I uh, pointed out. And I began with uh, the example of Neville Chamberlain and his proclamation of peace for our time. Uh, his proclamation of peace was ironic in that war broke out less than a year later. Uh, he made, you could almost see it as the opposite mistake of Solomon of not using his authority when he could have. Neither of them really acted in a way that brought lasting peace because they were not acting with high authority uh, combined with high vulnerability. So Solomon tried to pursue peace by uh, eliminating his enemies, um, but he was only successful in the short term, I would say. That lasting peace had to wait until David's greater son, Jesus, said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I do not give to you as the world gives. And when Jesus said this wor these words, um, he didn't say them in a vacuum, he was living in the midst of what was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, uh, in which the Roman Empire maintained peace by crushing all dissent. Um, but, as in the case of Solomon, uh, this did not lead to a lasting peace. Uh, it was all authority and no vulnerability, and uh, over the coming centuries, Rome would eventually fall uh, while the, the church of Jesus, that Jesus established uh, would continue. After Jesus' death and resurrection on the day of Pentecost, uh, the apostle Peter stood up and he told the crowd that had gathered around, David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. He was drawing a contrast uh, with David. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. This descendant was, it turns out, not Solomon. Uh, this descendant was raised from the dead, uh, and even now sits on not just David's throne, but on the throne of the universe. And his, his way, uh, his way of maximum uh, authority combined with maximum, maximum vulnerability is the only way to lasting peace between us and God and uh, in our lives together. Because Jesus is the only one who followed the law of God perfectly, as David encouraged Solomon to do at the end of his life. He's the only one who could ever say, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. If, so if we want to find peace, 
Um, and what makes for peace, I would say, um, we need to look to Jesus and, and not to David, Solomon, David and Solomon in 1 Kings 2. Uh, David and Solomon, as I mentioned they, earlier, they're often regarded as heroes in the Bible and they did a lot of great things. Um, but uh, even the great things that David and Solomon did uh, point to uh, who Jesus is, who the, the, true, uh, the true human is. Um, God become human. It's Jesus' high authority and his high vulnerability um, that we pursue when we walk with him. <coughs> so, just by way of uh, conclusion, um, hopefully I haven't gone on too long. I don't have a watch up here or anything. So, <laughs> yeah, doing all right? Okay, good. Um, so you might argue that, uh, that Sol- what Solomon did had to be done, that these were real threats to the kingdom uh, and the kingdom that God and his father had promised to him and that uh, Solomon had to take action and to maintain order. As I mentioned, there are uh, very good biblical scholars who make that argument and uh, they are smarter than me. Um, but I hope that you can see that whether it was necessary in that moment or not, that it didn't make for a lasting peace. It was provisional, it was temporary, um, which I I would say, like all of our attempts to secure peace through our own wisdom and strength. Lasting peace uh, comes from turning to, to Jesus, David's greater son, and the only truly righteous and just king. And we, when we ask him to forgive uh, our own sins, the, way that we, the ways that we have fallen short, um, when we ask him to make peace uh, between ourselves and God, he offers that forgiveness to us uh, and will never change his mind. And it's only as we look to Jesus and how he secured peace that we are given strength to pursue peace in our lives. Because pursuing peace is hard, uh, especially if you try to do it in the way of Jesus, where you have, you have authority, um, but you uh, act, uh, combining that with, with vulnerability. We want to act when we should wait, and wait when we should act. That's always the temptation that we have with us. Uh, but it's when we look at what pursuing peace cost Jesus that we gain peace in our own souls and we gain the strength that we need to follow him in peacemaking. Let's pray. All right, thank you for the ways in which you brought peace at great cost to yourself when you didn't have to do it, uh, you didn't have to become human, human, you did not have to go to the cross, um, but you did it anyway out of your great love for us uh, and your desire to, um, to have us be with you, uh, united with you. 
Lord, I pray that um, as we think about those areas in our lives where we want to find peace um, with people that we are in conflict with or even within ourselves, um, I pray that you will uh, give us the strength that we need to uh, pursue peace in uh, the way of Jesus, um, that you will um, give us creativity to uh, not follow along with the, the way that the world tends to find peace, uh, but that you will help us to combine authority and courage and brave it, bravery with vulnerability and find lasting peace in that way. Amen.